Hello and welcome to Beyond Business with Wärtsilä, a podcast series that goes above the realms of strategy and operations and seeks to find solutions to our global problems. I'm your host Atte Palomäki and I'll be talking to experts in their field about how we can work together and collaborate to make a real difference. The idea behind each episode is to look beyond the scope of profit and margins and to really discover how businesses, thought leaders and experts can rally together and use their experience, intelligence, forethought and honesty to facilitate true and tangible change. Eco-anxiety is a term used to describe the chronic fear of environmental doom. It has surfaced in the past few years as the fine line between being concerned about the climate and being anxious about it begins to blur. Research shows that the majority of the X and Y generation around the world now feels sad, fearful and distressed about climate change. This is a serious issue that needs to be dealt with responsibly. Joining me to talk about the topic are Dr. Emma Lawrence, a mental health innovations fellow at Imperial College London's Faculty of Medicine, and Anya Kamenets, a writer and correspondent at NPR who joins us from New York. A warm welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us here today. Emma, I'd like to start with you. Grief, shame and rage are all being linked to climate change. Extremely strong negative emotions. What is the correlation between climate change and mental health? And how grave is the problem of eco-anxiety? First of all, you know, when we talk about things like eco-anxiety, it's important to share, as you described, that this encompasses a range of emotions and experiences. So everything you said, things like grief, guilt, anger, anxiety. And it's important to understand that these are understandable and even healthy responses to the threats that we're facing. It means that you have empathy for others outside yourself and and care for the world. And so this is not a a mental illness in itself um, and can be seen as even an adaptive and healthy response, but it also is a stressor. You know, we are experiencing ongoing stress of what it means to live with the uncertainty of climate change, adapting to an already changing world, being faced with the, you know, the direct impacts of that, whether that's floods, fires, higher temperatures, forced migration, you know, changing livelihoods and landscapes, um, but also witnessing this, seeing this happening um, to the land around us or to people around the world. And so this can exacerbate mental um, health challenges. And we see that in a survey of 10,000 young people in 10 countries around the world, 45% of them said that you know, their worry and stress about climate change was affecting their daily life. So, you know, their sleep, their relationships, their work. So this is very serious. Exactly. What is it about climate change that triggers so much anxiety? Is it the harsh reality or how we are talking about it? So when we talk to young people and when uh, we see in the survey results that, you know, it's not just climate change itself, but the inaction in the face of it and the betrayal of that that's so distressing. But it is important the way we talk about this. It is important the narratives that we hold. And so we hold narratives like I'm too small to make a difference at the same time as holding narratives that, you know, all of my actions are contributing to climate change. And so they're both sort of paralyzed with sort of guilt and and worry, but also feeling like, well, what can I actually do here? And so it's important to address these narratives and also show the hopeful stories and show a vision of the future where 
when we act on climate as individuals or a society, there's multiple benefits. There's sort of win-wins that we get for our own physical and mental health through reduced air pollution, active transport, connecting to like-minded communities, um, working in our own lives and to push for systems change. And so it is really important that we talk about those hopeful narratives, that we allow people to open their hearts, but then to act and be given the support to do that. And Anya, how does this look from your perspective? I'm in conversation with parents and um, also in the educational space. And I think that the intergenerational conversation around climate is really important to acknowledge. Uh, first of all, there's a power difference, right? So when adults talk to young people, we're the ones in charge and they're looking to us to fix things and to make things okay for them and to make things feel safe. And the climate crisis is one area where that's not happening. Adults feel powerless and that powerlessness you know, transmits to children. I think also, you know, there's a very real generational divide in the impacts of climate change. So when you are born in 2011 and 2016, as my children are, the year 2075 or 2100 is very realistic. It's part of your horizon. So um, children um, look look forward to a very different future. And so there's a, just as, you know, you can think of children as being like the inhabitants of an island nation where they're more vulnerable. They're also like the inhabitants of many lower income countries. They've contributed less to the problem. So they have both, you know, they're suffering more is, um, in the future and they also have less responsibility. And I think that what's unacknowledged often goes silent in the intergenerational conversation is a feeling of guilt that parents have um, that they brought kids into this situation. And, and that guilt can lead to avoidance. It can lead to silence. And, um, you know, when, while merit, many parents are spurred to action on the climate crisis because of their concern for the upcoming generations, I believe that there are even more parents that are spurred to avoidance because of those unpleasant feelings that we have around maybe we shouldn't have done this or, you know, how can I be responsible for bringing these kids into the world? And I had a devastating conversation with my daughter um, when she was seven years old. And she basically just said one day, wow, you guys are lucky that you got to be adults before the planet was um, on, on fire. Um, and it wasn't something that we had really discussed in detail, but obviously she'd absorbed conversations around the house. And what was most devastating about it to me, and I've written about this, was that she wasn't complaining or crying. She was really matter of fact. And the reality of a, of a planet that is changing and is in some ways becoming unrecognizable is something that that's, that's the accepted reality that many children are growing up in. And, you know, I think that's very hard to face for those of us who are responsible for young children. Um, and it's very necessary to face. Do you feel that us as parents, teachers, adults in general can see this cross the generations? Do we understand the magnitude of the problem? I don't know if anyone takes in the totality of the problem of climate. I think parents, um, especially coming out of the COVID crisis, have quite a lot on our plates and we're very consumed with the present day, present moment. Um, so that's that makes it hard. Um, we just don't have as much time and energy to think about the totality of things. Um, I surveyed teachers as part of my work uh, for National Public Radio a couple of years ago and found there's broad agreement among both teachers and parents that children ought to be learning about the climate crisis and the basic facts. But many fewer parents and teachers felt that they were actually equipped to teach it. Um, and that's true in many dimensions. First of all, 
in the United States, we have a, a dearth of funding, you know, for science education in general. Teachers don't feel equipped. But then this other thing that came up was, I don't feel like my kids are old enough to discuss this. So the idea that climate is an adult topic, that is, um, you know, it's hard to get into the ramifications of it. I think it's something that's pervasive. So trying to understand, have a vocabulary for talking about changes in nature, changes in um, the rhythms, you know, children are really just learning about nature, about biodiversity and, and how the natural cycles work. And so then to introduce the idea that these cycles are off kilter um, does have a layer of complexity that I think a lot of teachers are daunted by. Is this purely a phenomena of the younger generation or are there other groups such as indigenous people or people from vulnerable geographies who suffer from eco-anxiety? So just to actually follow on from what Anya said, you know, I think it's so powerful, the voice of children, because it it's so straightforward, right, what her daughter said, and it's is so direct. And so there aren't these kind of maybe layers built up of, you know, being part of these bigger systems or seeing the complexities of changing them. And we see this also in Indigenous communities, in farming communities, in people on the front lines, where there's a strong connection to nature. You know, we see a lot of reporting of this being a source of strength, but also at the same time, you know, when that is your source of strength and your source of um, joy and your livelihood, then also, you know, this is, uh, when this is changing, you know, that really strikes at your core. And we saw that in the survey of 10,000 young people around the world, the results of that study also showed that in contrast to what some people thought of eco-anxiety is sort of a, just only a rich kind of nation, Western white problem that people with more or countries where there was more direct experience were actually showing increased anxiety and distress um, because they are more exposed. But beyond that, as Anya said, you know, parents and potential parents, teachers trying to talk about this with young people, you know, we, we see it at various age groups and in various groups. How can anyone identify that a person close to him or her is dealing with climate anxiety and what can they do about it? It's really important, I think, with anything that we're going through, um, to be able to to talk about it and to feel, particularly if you're a child or a young person, to feel that the adults in your life are listening to you. And it's really vital when we speak to children and young people and to mental health professionals working with children and young people um, that the parents, teachers, adults in their life are able to reassure and validate the young people experiencing this or anyone really experiencing this, that their feelings are understandable and valid and that's, that they can trust, that they can talk about these things. So one of the most powerful things we find for anyone experiencing this is just to find spaces where they can talk, find spaces where they can connect with others and start to unpack how they're feeling and also then to move into action. So to have a greater sense of agency, to work with others towards that future you want to see. Um, and so, you know, whether that's as a family saying, you know, actually we're going to change the way we travel to our holiday this year, or we're going to um, work put, work into increasing the biodiversity in our garden, or we're going to, to join um, a group that's making a change in the way that we, we're going to walk our children to school instead of drive. Um, if it's, you know, joining uh, a group that's, yeah, campaigning to, uh, you know, increase um 
green space in your community or whatever it is, you know, there's so many different ways. But of course, that's got to be balanced with not burning out and, you know, ensuring that you have space to care for yourself as well. And so we're trying to develop ways to cope and respond sort of simultaneously. So Anya, how does this recipe sound to you as a parent and educator? Oh, I absolutely agree that um, taking actions that are concrete, that are in line with values is is really one of the best ways. I mean, you don't want to rush kids to action and nobody should rush to action. You've got to feel the feelings. But it's been immensely healing um, in my family to talk about the actions that we can take that are in line with our beliefs about what's important. And that means, you know, how we spend time in nature, um, choosing to eat less meat, to buy food locally, choosing to ride a bike instead of cars. And there's so many different things that you can take, uh, actions that you can take on a family basis that um, children really pick up on. Um, and I know that, you know, I've seen, especially with, with younger children, a lot of eco-anxiety can be very, they can be very fixated on things like litter or, um, you know, sea animals. And, and so giving them a way to take action, including civic action, political action, um, is is so incredibly fortifying. And, you know, um, it's just amazing when a family gets together and decides to make decisions and, and choices based on values that you've agreed on. I think that, you know, strengthening that through rituals, you know, deciding, you know, going to the farmer's market or working in the garden or, um, you know, another thing that my family has done is um, taken trips to places where we can see ecosystems that are, um, you know, threatened like coral reefs and glaciers, all of those things have been very healing for us as a family and not running away from the feelings, but also knowing that we can um, take action. I think children really naturally incline toward hope and action. And so they can lead us on that. Children obviously spend a lot of time at school and thus the education system has a role to play. Anya, in your mind, how can schools help the youth to deal with issues like this? You know, there's so much that schools can do. And I think what's fascinating about it is that um, schools that orient toward the climate crisis are taking a lot of actions that really are positive and beneficial all the way around for 21st century skills. So what I mean by that is uh, schools that are looking at the whole process of the school, looking at um, the food that they eat, looking at getting children civically engaged, looking at hands-on science, and sort of making children into engaged, involved citizens I think climate is an incredible kind of multidisciplinary topic. And when schools really embrace that challenge, what results is an incredibly engaging curriculum, honestly. I, I remember speaking to a teacher in Hawaii who was having his students engage in citizen science. They were taking samples of the ocean and participating in a in a broader international project with those samples and the readings from them. So it can be amazing. I mean, it's a challenge for sure, but embracing that challenge. I think it takes us in a direction where we have, you know, much better education all the way around. Still with you, Anya, what responsibility should media shoulder here? The narratives that we're presented with in the media that touch on climate change are oftentimes fragmented, frightening, or else quite technical. We hear about giant government reports, or we hear about flooding and fires, you know, and, and there's not a lot of attempts to connect the dots. And I think what the media could do a much better job of is representing the positive actions that folks are taking all across the board, whether that be, you know, entrepreneurs or activists or youth. And I think in in the media, and I can speak from inside it, 
there tends to be a reluctance to present the views of advocates as though that's going to introduce a bias rather than just sort of straightforwardly saying, you know, this is the work that they're trying to do. These are the solutions they're presenting um, and they have positions and, and pros and cons just like anybody else. So understanding that, I think obviously there are people who have become international figures like Greta Thunberg, but I think it's incumbent upon all of us in the media to make sure that we're fairly representing some of the protagonists of the climate struggle and not just kind of the the adversaries or the disasters. Do you think that governments and health officials across the world recognize this as a public health issue? Yeah, so absolutely. A lot of the ways that climate change impacts mental health, even with increasing temperatures, we see increasing suicide rates, increased hospitalizations for mental illness, people with mental illnesses are pre-existing and more likely to die in a heat wave. So this is a big public health issue. Climate change is a health emergency and a mental health emergency, and governments need to account for that. And this is currently completely hidden costs that are very significant and we need to you know, actually cost them and make them tangible. Inaction is sort of a, a moral injustice. And what my colleagues with the Avaz study of 10,000 young people around the world I've been mentioning have found is that they see it, the failure of governments to act as a moral injury um, to children. It's knowing that there's distress knowing that you're inflicting sort of ongoing pain and suffering without action can be seen as a a moral injury and a complete failing. So this is something that is sort of starting to go to human rights courts because that inaction has that effect. So I think we're going to see more and more of that to come. I think there's also, it's really important to hold on to this good news story and there's always a future that we can be working towards that is brighter and where we have these win-wins of action and that needs to be recognized by governments too. And Anya, what's your reflection from your side of the pond? Is the US government taking sufficient action around this? Obviously it's not sufficient, but I think we've all been looking to where we were a year ago before the presidential election or um, three or four years ago before the Sunrise Movement really burst onto the scene and change the conversation around the Green New Deal, um, we're in a very, very different place. Um, We're also in a different place with the growth of green energy and clean energy. And I think although some hopes have been diminished with the current plan in Congress, it's still one of the biggest packages that any government's ever contemplated around climate. So, you know, there's a fighting chance. I think there's equal hopes, kind of despair and energy. I think for those of us who concern ourselves with youth, and children, there's no room for for ultimately despair. We have to keep working. You know, the time horizons are very real, 2050, 2075, like I said. And so there's really no choice. You know, it's not about hope as a passive feeling, but hope as action. And that's kind of what young people are fighting for. Studies also show that there's growing trust in businesses versus government. So in that context, are there some concrete actions that companies and employers should take to help the millennials feel less anxious about the environment? You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think that um, I've heard that brand affinity is less strong among millennials and Gen Z because they're a little more skeptical about claims that brands make. But I think when there are brands that have been successful in this area, they have made commitments that are evident. And I mean, when you look at things like uh, Hydro Flask is a random example where it's 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 giving you know it's playing an eco-friendly role in in children's lives or young people's lives and so that's reliable that's something that they can they can believe in i know all the young people that i know want to find uh, work in a field or find a job that is 
um, in a verifiable way, making the world a better place. So I think that's going to be a very important factor going forward for companies that are hiring this generation. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think it links back to what Anya was saying about what's termed meaning-focused coping, but this it's really valuable to do things that are in line with your values and taking action that you can see is beneficial. And we see that young people, yeah, again, are looking for jobs in industry. So it's two industries benefit to align with that. But there's also, you know, as many other people can say about much more, there's so much greenwashing that happens by industry as well. And so I would say that, you know, where people see through that more and more, and I think this gap between, you know, even fossil fuel companies sort of focusing on what are you doing as your individual carbon footprint, your individual emissions, and more and more young people and others are saying, well, what are you doing? And so I think that there's a bit of a shift going on there. And so I think in terms of what industry can do, it's similar to what governments can do in some ways. It's like take actual action, open up your heart to what's happening and take the actions that's needed. That's what young people are telling us that they want. And that's what they want from governments. That's what they want from industry. And finally, question to both of you. How can we create a stronger, more positive connection with nature to reduce the fear of environmental doom? So I think the connection's important and connection is a key word in mental health and also in the way that we come together to tackle the climate crisis. In many ways, this both mental health and the climate crisis can be seen as crisis of disconnection. And I think connection to nature can be an enormous source of, of strength and We see that people who feel a deeper connection to nature have higher mental health and well-being. In general, studies show reconnecting to nature is important for our mental health and well-being and important for how we think of ourselves, you know, in this systems way, in this holistic way that we need to do to take action together on climate. So we see that while most people in surveys think that other people have selfish values and don't care about nature, Actually, the vast majority of those same people that answer the survey uh, in these uh, representative samples do care. So people care more than other people think they do. So, you know, there are these common values of humanity that we hold, even if we don't always see it represented in the media. And I think that's important to know, too. We are in this together and there's a lot of us working for those changes. This is an area where I feel like we can really let our children lead because young children are so biophilic. They love the natural world. They love animals. They're so curious about dinosaurs and about how the universe began. And if you let a child lead you, you're going to be involved in in all of these incredible encounters. I was walking through my local park uh, yesterday and there was a hawk up in a tree and a bunch of little children clustered around um, with a grown-up pointing it out. There's more birds of prey and more wild animals in New York City than there have been in many uh, decades because of the restoration of um, urban nature. And I think helping kids understand that living creatures are all around us, no matter where we live, is something that can be so restorative and so um, helpful in trying to figure out how we're going to live on this planet. On that note, we've come to the end of this extremely enlightening discussion. Emma and Anya, thank you so much for the valuable insights on this sensitive issue. It's been such a pleasure speaking with both of you. Oh, same. Thank you very much. Please subscribe to our podcast on your platform and stay tuned for discussions on the pressing issues that we all must care about. 
I'm your host Atte Palomäki and today we went beyond business. <laughs>